Our text for this morning is Psalm 27. If you want to go ahead and be turning there, I would like to report after last week that the lights up here are perfect. They're excellent. So if you don't have no idea what I'm talking about, then don't go back to last week and look it up. All right. Uh, so Psalm 27. That's where we're at this morning. So what I want us to see and understand from the beginning is that Psalm 27 falls into a, a pattern that we've seen over the last couple of psalms. Uh, each psalm, what we see in them is an expression of trust. In psalm 25, verse 2, David writes, O oh my God, in you I trust. In Psalm 26, 1, he said, I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. And then in Psalm 27, 3, what we'll read in just a few minutes, he expresses confidence in God despite the presence of enemies. In these psalms, they've also carried with them repeated appeals to God's mercy uh, for deliverance from enemies. There have also been requests that David has made uh, to God, asking him for help. Help me, Lord, uh, live righteously. Help me continue on in, in godliness. You have Psalm 25, verse 8, where he says that the Lord instructs sinners in the right way. Then again, just a couple of verses later, Psalm 25, 12, the one who fears the Lord is instructed in the way that he should choose. Then in Psalm 26, 11 uh, and 12, he asks the Lord, O Lord, redeem me, be, be gracious to me. And these requests that he makes there in Psalm 26 are tied to his intention to stand on level ground, uh, which is the, the way of, of righteousness. So what we're going to see this morning in Psalm 27 is these themes that have been kind of like interwoven in the last several psalms, they're all going to come together in Psalm 27. Trust in the Lord, help and deliverance from enemies, and desires to live righteously. So if you will, turn to Psalm 27 and let's read it together. It says this, Of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army uh, encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, Yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that w that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up, above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, Cast me not off, forsake me not, 
O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And now let's enter into a time of prayer, and then come back to the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you this morning grateful that we have woken up today with a desire to come and be in your house together, to sing songs of praise to you, to read your word and pray together, to study your word together. And I pray, Lord, that you would work through your word, that you would work through these other means of grace that you have given to your church to continue to mature us in faith, to continue growing us in steadfast love for you, to convict us of our sin, to open our eyes where we've gone astray from you and your word, bring us back to righteousness, to the paths of righteousness. Lord, we, we come recognizing that there are also those who, who get up and come this morning hurting, tired, filled with sorrow, with minds that are, are cluttered because of the distresses and distractions and frustrations of living in a corrupted and fallen world. And Lord, I pray that you would meet each in your word, that you would speak into struggles and strifes and heartache through your word, reminding us that in you alone do we have hope. In you alone can we be confident. In you alone is there salvation. In you alone is there rejoicing because of the cross of Christ and the empty tomb. And so, God, we pray this morning and ask for steadfastness. Lord, even if we've come into this room this morning with joy, life is easy and going as we hope and desire. Lord, we know that in a broken and fallen world, that can change at any moment. And so may our steadfastness not be rooted in our circumstance, because we know that if it is, Lord, we'll fall. Lord, we need you. Keep us. Hold us. Keep us steadfast, loving you delighting in you and in your word and in your ways. Hold us tightly, Lord, for your glory. We know that our good, it is good for us to have our lives tethered to your word. Remind us of that this morning, that we would live in such a way that pleases you. Help us, Lord, that's our plea, to understand the word to rightly have it applied to our lives. May your spirit do that in each of us, that we would be conformed into the likeness of Christ, made mature in him. We pray this in his name. Amen. 
So with Psalm 27, I want to divide it this morning into just two teaching points. The first being this, that imitating Christ gives you freedom from your enemies. Imitating Christ gives you freedom from your enemies. So the, the flow of the psalm begins with David talking about God. What we're actually going to see is David talking about God, then David talking to God, and then David resolved because of who God is, because of his character. But talking about God is what we see David doing in the, in the first six verses. He opens up by emphatically stating who he knows God to be. God is his light. God is his salvation. So what does he mean that he is his light? He is the source of that which is true, that which is right, that which is good. He is David's light. But he is his salvation. He delivers David. He saves David from his enemies. But even then, immediately, what we have to do, in light of what David starts with in verse 1, is we have to turn our attention back to Psalm 24. Because if we come to Psalm 27 and we read this and we're like, okay, I, I, get, I get that and I'm with you, David, but what are you grounding this in? What is the basis for the fact that, that you're saying these things, you're claiming these things is true? Well, I think we just go back a couple of Psalms to Psalm 24. Because there, David makes it abundantly clear. The Lord is king over all. In fact, if you remember, when I got to preach on Psalm 24 just a couple of weeks ago, and what we saw in Psalm 24 is, and even before Psalm 24, is that the entire first book of the Psalms emphasizes this point over and over again. The Lord is king. The Lord is king. He is king over all that he has made. He is seated on his throne. That's been explicitly stated in several of the Psalms, going all the way back, starting in Psalm 2, where we see that there are kings and others who seek to overthrow the Lord and his anointed, and from his throne he laughs. He laughs at those who would think that they could dare overthrow his rule and reign. Therefore, what this leads David to at the beginning of Psalm 27, his starting position before he gets into anything else is to say, who do I have to be afraid of? Who do I have to be scared of? I know the king, and he is my light, source of what is true, right, and good, and he is and has been my salvation. But then in verse 2, we understand, okay, this is why David started here. This is why David has, has started in this place saying these things about God. Because in verses 2 and 3, we find out, oh, look, there's a problem. David is dealing with a problem. There are evildoers who attack him. And it seems you know, certainly plausible that David has a wide range of, of enemies in view here. Maybe there are specific adversaries and foes, like what he mentions in, in verse 2 to foreign armies that he mentions in, in verse 3. You might think of it as, you know, there are enemies within the camp, there are enemies outside the camp. I think he has all of the above in view in verses 2 and 3. And we're going to see by the time we get to the end of the psalm that David perhaps does have someone or maybe some ones specifically in mind. At the very least, he has a certain type of problem specifically in mind because in verse 12, he makes mention of adversaries that are making slanderous accusations against him. They're breathing out falsehoods about him and breathing out violence against him. 
But before we, before we ever get there, David starts with confidence in the Lord. Because the Lord is his light and salvation. So who does he have to fear? The Lord is my stronghold. He is my refuge. So I can and will be confident in the face of these enemies that assail me on every side. So he states his problem. I got enemies. But he's also filtering this through, this problem through the confidence that he has in the Lord. And so taking these things, holding them in each hand, in verse 4 he turns to the only true solution to the problem. He states for us, all right, these are my desires. In light of the fact that I know I can be confident in God, in light of the fact that I know I got enemies, both without and within, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all my days. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire of God in his temple. So, I, I was helped this week, and maybe you'll find it helpful as well, by, by Derek Kidner and how he breaks down what, what David is, is, is driving at here. What Kidner lays out is, is that, that for David, the way that David is kind of thinking through the solution to his problem, the, the best solution to what uh, ails him here is to behold God and inquire of him. To behold and inquire. You know, beholding God, it captures the idea of gazing upon his beauty. If the Lord is his light, his salvation, his stronghold, his confidence, well then the only option for David in times of trouble is come to the Lord. It's to come before him in worship, reflecting on who God has revealed himself to be. He needs to remind himself of the character of God and seek after him, inquiring of him. But what we see from David is that he longs for more than just momentary fellowship with the Lord. See, it seems that he, re he recognizes a constant need to behold the glory of God. He must come to him again and again and again for aid. This is the only solution to his problem. The only sturdy peg on which he can hang his hat, if you will. And so then he explains in verses 5 and 6, well, this is why this is the only solution. I have my problem. I've got my solution. Why does this work? Why is this the only possible solution to my problem? And it returns him to confidence in the Lord. What does he say? The Lord will provide shelter for me. He will conceal David. He will lift him up. His enemies will be put to shame, but the Lord will sustain him. And this leads him to be confident that he will worship the Lord. He told us in verse 4 that the one thing that he seeks after is to dwell in the house of the Lord all of his days. And then he tells us in verse 6, I expect that this is going to happen. He will come before the Lord and offer sacrifices. He says, I, I will come and behold the beauty of of God, I will come and sing and make melody to him in the house of the Lord. He is confident in God. But this, I mean, we understand the problem here, right? Like, it, it's great to say this. It's great to say that, you know, this is who God is. But it, it's only true if it, if, if it, it only works if it's actually true 
this is who God is, right? David, he can only be confident that he'll dwell in the house of the Lord if God is, in fact, king. If he's not, well, he's not going to experience no victories, right? Not having any victories over any enemies. He's not going to have it by just naming and claiming it, right? If I just say it and speak it into existence, it'll be. He ain't going to manifest it through the power of positive thinking, am I right? He had to rely on the Lord to deliver him. And he was confident that the Lord would. But not based on just a feeling. If we are led by our feelings, well, that might just be the burrito we ate the night before, right? It's not based on a feeling. It's not based on blind hope. It's based on the Lord's character. Who he has revealed himself to be in history. David knew the Lord to be faithful because he had been nothing but faithful to David. We don't know when in David's reign that he penned this psalm. We don't know if there was a specific situation that, that David had in, had in mind when he wrote. We know that there are slanderous accusations being made against him. Is it by one person? Is it by multiple persons? Is this one instance? Is this just lumping together multiple times where this has happened against him? We don't know. But we do know from the word of God all the times that the Lord had delivered David from his enemies. He delivered him when he stood alone before Goliath. He delivered David from the hand of Saul over and over again. He delivered him from the Philistines when he fled to them because he was running from Saul. He even delivered him from himself. You remember when he wanted to take vengeance against Nabal for showing him up, for, for being unkind to him after David had looked after his sheep? And the Lord, through Abigail, keeps him from this act of vengeance against this man who had wronged him. The Lord had shown himself to be faithful. So David could be confident because of who God had shown himself to be. So like I said a minute ago, verses 1 through 6, David speaking about God. But he's also stating what he intends to do. I think that might be another way to, to think about it. Yes, talking about God, but also saying, all right, guys, this is what I intend to do. It is my intent to dwell in the house of the Lord all of my days, to gaze upon his beauty, to inquire of him in his temple, to sing and make melody to the Lord. This is my intent. And so then when we get to verses 7 through 12, what we find is the shift. Yes, David is now speaking to God. He has spoken about. He's speaking to. He's told us what he intends to do. And now he's doing it, right? That is what he is doing in verses 7 through 12. And so look at 7. He cries out to God. And what's the basis of his plea? What's the basis of his cry? He says, Lord, be gracious to me. Well, how would the Lord be gracious to him? By answering him. Well, then David makes an appeal in verse 8 on the basis of his obedience. The Lord has commanded, he says, he says, Lord, you have said, seek your face. You have told us this is what we ought to do. We ought to seek your face. And David comes back and says, I did it. I have done that. I've sought you. And so in this, he makes his plea. 
I've done what you instructed your people to do. I have sought you. And so in verse 9, please don't, don't hide your face from me, Lord. That's what he asks. You said seek your face, so I'm, I'm doing it. Don't turn away from me then in anger. And I don't know about for you, but when, when I first read that, I found that to be a little strange. We know in Psalms, in very recent Psalms, there have been instances where David has acknowledged his sin, where he has come to the Lord and asked for forgiveness for his sins. We don't have that in Psalm 27. So it's like, okay, so what is, what is the Lord angry, angry at you for here? What, why might he be angry? Well, well just, just think about it for a second. If David comes to him and says, be gracious to me, and then he says, okay, Lord, you, you commanded this. You commanded me to seek your face. And I did it. And then the Lord doesn't respond. If the Lord turns his face away from him, well, what's the only logical conclusion? He's angry with him. If he's going to ignore him, then he must be angry with him. And so David says, don't, don't be angry with me. Hear my plea. Turn to me, Lord, because I've sought you. So what is David doing? He's making appeals to the Lord on the basis of the Lord's own character. And this draws us back again to the past several psalms. Psalm 24 again, in verses 5 and 6. David wrote that the seeking the face of God leads to blessing and righteousness. And we saw in Psalm 24 that those who seek his face, those who seek the face of the Lord, they trust in him alone. They're wholly devoted to him. And so on the basis of their trust in him, on the basis of the fact that they are wholly devoted to him, they don't give their worship to another, they give it alone to the one true God, they may come before him. They may come into his house and worship. And then Psalm 25.3, David wrote that none who wait on the Lord will be put to shame. 25.8, the, the Lord leads those who are humble in what is right and teach them his ways. So in light of that, David's plea, I think, makes perfect sense. Don't turn away from me. Don't cast me off. Don't be angry with me because he's saying, Lord, be who you have said you are. Be true to your character. Do what you have said you will do. And yet he makes this plea in complete confidence. We see that in verse 10. And so again, there's some wording there that may be a little weird. Did David's father and mother disown him? Is that something that happened? I guess it could be. I don't think so. I don't think that's what David is claiming here, that this is something that actually happened. Again, Kidner, I found helpful here. It seems like David is speaking uh, hypothetically. You know, if this were to happen... If I became an orphan, and effectively that's where I am. Effectively, I am an orphan, but you, Lord, you take me in. So he's appealing again to the Lord's character, emphasizing what the Lord will do. You take me in. You will not abandon me in my time of need. Though even my parents abandoned me, though man be fickle, you, Lord, are not. You will be true to me. So I think we need, to, we need to maybe sense the desperation in David. Yes, he's confident in the Lord. Yes, he trusts that the Lord will be true to his character. 
But I don't think that that means that there, there isn't an air of, of desperation in the claims that he's making, in the pleas that he's making, what he's asking of God in calling on God to be true to his own character. And I think we see that in verses 11 and 12. They show that and they show why. So in verse 11, David asks the Lord, Lord, teach me your way. He says he wants to be led on the level path which means he wants to be led in the paths of righteousness. Lead me in what is, in what is godly. Lead me on the, the paths of godliness and what is right and what is true. But does that not take us back to verse 4? And what, what did he say was the only solution to the problem? Well, he said it was to dwell in the house of the Lord all his days. It's the one thing he said that he would seek. So then, coming back to verse 4... This idea of dwelling in the house of the Lord all his days, what does he mean? What, do, what would that actually tangibly look like? To understand and follow the ways of the Lord. The only reasonable solution to dealing with his enemies was for David to come to the Lord. And so he tells us in 11 that he wants to know and follow the ways of the Lord. I mean, he tells us that. Because of my enemies... Teach me your ways and lead me in them. They've made false accusations. They're breathing out violence against me. And so in response, David goes running to the Lord. But even then, what's his request? It's not give me victory in battle. It's not, Lord, silence them, shut their mouths. He's asking the Lord to help him continue walking in the ways of God. In verse 4. He said that he would inquire of the Lord in his temple, that that was his desire, was to inquire of the Lord at his temple. Well, what's he doing in verse 11? He's inquiring of the Lord at his temple, asking the Lord to teach him and sustain him in the paths of righteousness. Which takes us back to Psalm 1. Why would David do this? Why in the midst of his, his enemies, why is this his request? Why is it not... Lord, strike them dead. Lord, strike them down. Well, back in Psalm 1, David told us that the blessed man is not the one who is delivered and given great military victory. It says the blessed man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. This person, he says, meditates on it day and night. But he also says in Psalm 1 that this person remains steadfast. They don't wither. They don't fade. Instead, they prosper. But what happens to the wicked? He tells us that in Psalm 1 too. They are blown away. They can't stand before the Lord. They can't stand before His judgment. They don't find peace among His people. And all these themes have come together in Psalm 27. David's delight and desire is to remain steadfast in the ways of the Lord. He reflects on the Lord's character. He asks, Lord, teach me your ways. You are gracious. You do as you have said. I want that. Teach me that. To be gracious. And to be steadfast. So the exact opposite of his enemies. And what does he say will happen to them? Well, verse 2, they stumble and they fall. 
in verse 6, his head is lifted above theirs. He is sustained, they are not. He has fellowship with the one true God, the true King, over all creation. They do not. So, I think that should cause us to ask the question, right? What, what is at the heart of David's plea here? What is it that David's wanting? We, we know that he wants to understand and walk in to follow the ways of the Lord. And in that, what I think he's asking is, Lord, help me make it. His only hope is for the Lord to sustain him in righteousness. Maybe his enemies overtake him. Maybe his enemies even put him in the grave. But it doesn't seem that he's so much concerned with their wrath or what they could do to him. His concern in the face of despair is that the Lord would keep him on the paths of righteousness. Because in that, he experiences true salvation, true deliverance from his enemies. And what is that? What is true salvation and deliverance from his enemies? From coming to the place where he can say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. What can they do to me? Kill me? Okay. I've been established in the ways of God. I am the blessed man who stands in the day of his judgment, not them. What can they do to me? So what does David have in being established in the ways of God? He has freedom. It's not that the enemies couldn't cause him pain and difficulty. It's not at all what I mean. But being established by God in God's ways means being free from his enemies. They cannot force him into despair. And even if he does come to the place where he despairs, they cannot keep him there. They hold no power over him. He belongs to the Lord, so he's free from his enemies. They stumble, but he will be lifted up. But of course, this, this psalm points to another Israelite, one far more faithful than David. David desired to be taught and led in the ways of God, yes, but he stumbled significantly, right? He became his own worst enemy in his affair with Bathsheba, commits the sin of adultery, and then tries to get Uriah drunk and, to, and sent back to his wife to cover his own filthy tracks. That doesn't work. So he just has Uriah murdered. Even having Uriah carry the very letter that sealed his fate back to Joab. If that wasn't enough, later in his life, after the Lord delivered him from the consequences of that, he sins again by taking a foolish census to see how mighty his army was. But there was one who trusted in the ways of the Lord perfectly, even unto death. Jesus, too, was falsely accused, was he not? He was arrested, and he was tried without any real charges. But what did he do when he was falsely accused? Well, for one thing, he stopped his disciples from acting a fool when Peter goes and tries to lob a dude's head off and misses and gets his ear. What does Jesus say to him in that moment? 
Way to go, guys. More swords. We need more swords. Since there's not that many of them. No. One, he put the dude's ear back on his head, which is amazing and cool. But he looks at his disciples and he says, and he makes an appeal to the Father. He says, in this moment, I could appeal to the Father. He would send me 12 legions of angels. If I wanted to fight my way out of this, I could do it. But what does he say? How then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? So out of the garden and into the Sanhedrin, where he faces his false accusations, his false accusers, there he's slandered, but what does he do? Matthew 26, 63 tells us, But Jesus remained silent. As it was written of him in Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This continued when he was, when he was brought before Pilate. Despite the many things that he was charged with, he didn't give an answer. You might remember his encounter with Pilate, where Pilate is having these accusations made against Jesus, and Jesus will not respond to him if these things are, are true or not. And he looks at Jesus and he says, Don't you understand? I hold the power of life and death over you. Your fate is in my hands. What does Jesus say back to him? You would have no power if it hadn't been given to you. He didn't contend with or against his accusers. As a lamb being led to the slaughter, he didn't open his mouth. And the author of Hebrews tells us why. In Hebrews 12, 2, we read that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' joy in the plans and the purposes of God led him to endure the cross. He understood and followed the ways of God even unto death in the place of sinners. Remember, do you remember what he prayed in Gethsemane? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you, as you will. Your will be done. He did so perfectly without stain of sin, without shred of wavering in, the conf- in his confidence in the Father, just because of the joy that was set before him, securing a people for himself by the shedding of his own blood, exaltation at the right hand of the Father, confidence that he would be raised from the dead. What does he say in John 10? He says, No one takes my life from me, I lay it down. I have been given the authority to lay my life down, and I have been given the authority to take it back up again. Trusted fully in the ways of God, the ways of the Father. And for it, he reigns in glory as the vindicated one. 
His resurrection was his vindication. It served as the declaration of his innocence as the Holy One of God and established him as the only way by which God's people can and will be made right with him. The resurrection of Jesus supplies all who trust in him for salvation with hope. It's not that everything is always going to go our way or turn out like we would like. And really, let's think about it. If things always went the way that you and I want, would that really turn out into what is best for us? Do we truly know what is best for us? Or is it instead our Father in heaven who set forward His only Son to bear our sin guilt in our place? No, our hope is in something far better than we would ever settle and decide on for ourselves. Our hope is the future resurrection from the dead and the eternal life that we have in Him. We who He understood and followed the ways of the Lord, even unto death in our place, and that secures for us this hope, and He provides it to us, all based on His merit, none of her own. Through faith in Him, we're delivered from sin, we're delivered from death, we're delivered from the wrath of God through His righteousness. And so what this hope produces in the Christian is imitation of Christ. Imitating Christ in joyful obedience despite enemies. See, while, while David points us to what is right, Jesus leads us into it by doing it. He fulfills Psalm 27 by perfectly knowing and following the Father's ways despite enemies. And in so doing, those who come to Him for eternal life are established on the level path. He gives to us His Spirit who works in us to provide understanding of God's ways. But not just that, the Spirit works in us to produce obedience in the ways of God. And so because it's the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, at work in us, through faith in Christ, who laid down His life for the sins of His people, what then should flow out of Christians in the face of despair? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Consider what Peter said of Jesus and Jesus' response to his enemies in 1 Peter uh, 1, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 2, verse 23, it says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If this is true of him, and he has given us his spirit, then what will mark his people? It's not the same kind of patient endurance. But that, of course, begs the question. Who are our enemies? What are our enemies? I, I want to define them as anything that can drive us to despair. I don't know about y'all. I don't think any of you have foreign armies that are surrounding your house. Maybe you do. I do not. So then I think it begs the question, all right, for us, what is an enemy? Anything, anyone or anything 
that can drive us to despair. It could be people. It could be the unkind boss who is on you and 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 then takes all the credit for your hard work. Sure. It could be the family member who treats you with contempt, who only ever has a harsh word to say, a biting word to say, a criticizing word to say, who is holding uh, and withholding forgiveness from you, holding your past sins over your head. Sure, could be that. But what about cancer? What about bouts with depression and anxiety? What about ongoing, ever-present, sometimes wholly consuming temptations and struggles with sin? These are all the byproduct of living in a fallen world that's corrupted by sin. So they're enemies just as much as any person who sets themselves against us. The question is, how are you and I, how are we going to react? And how do we react when we face enemies of various kinds? Whatever you want to insert in the place of enemy. What do moments of despair, what does it bring out in you? Is it confidence in the Lord? Is it you know, a, a, a time where you say, I'm, you know, I know this is bad, I know this is awful, but I can, I'm going to reflect on the goodness and faithfulness of God towards me in Christ. Does it produce that? I hope so. Or do you become overwhelmed? Do you become drawn towards sin? Do you ever find yourself in the place where everything seems to be crumbling around you and you find yourself going, what's the point? What's the point of resisting sin? What's the point of pushing it away? Why am I doing, why am I doing this? We just feed these desires because what's the point? Everything around me is falling apart anyways. Do you become short and unkind towards others? Do you become increasingly more impatient? Do you become less gracious? Are your words sharp and biting? Does being slandered lead you to slander? Do you turn to food or other vices to distract you, even for just just a minute, from your difficulty? The question I'm driving at, and really want us to think about, is where do you turn for solace when despair starts knocking at your door? And this this is where it becomes a problem for me. I can only speak for me. But patient endurance against enemies of various kind, it's hard. It is really hard. The inclination of my sinful heart is to seek solace in many, many other things, but not the hope that's supplied through the resurrection of Jesus. And that's foolish. That's just silly. And yet it's so appealing. And yet, even in the midst of that, Maybe you're like me. Maybe you do find yourself in that place. Drawn to find solace in anything and everything. Taking vengeance for yourself. You know, getting back at those who've hurt you. Maybe you find solace in that. And you realize that's foolish. That's sin. It's not faithful. Consider the tender mercies of God to us in Christ. Jesus says, come to him all who are heavy laden and he will give you rest. He says, I am gentle and lowly. His burden is easy, his yoke is light. In him there is rest for our weary souls. 
And so what that means is that in him, we find true freedom from enemies. The hope that we have by faith in his resurrection from the dead leads to this freedom. He promises that he will not turn away any who come to him for salvation. He promises that those who come to him too one day will be raised from the dead. He who has conquered death shares his victory with his people. Therefore, we can stand and say, with David, what can any enemy, any enemy do to me? I'm free to seek rest in Christ. I am free to seek the face of God, to seek, to understand, and follow his ways. It's not to diminish the pain or sorrow that we experience, not at all. But simply to say that in the context of Jesus' victory over sin and death, we can agree with the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians 14, 4, where he says, it's light and it's momentary. I can press on in faithfulness as Christ did because of my confidence in Him and the sureness of the salvation that He has provided through the cross and the empty tomb. And so in the face of despair, I can cling tightly to this hope. This wells up within me to produce joy in the face of sorrow, gentleness with those who are difficult, kindness towards those who are harsh, it produces self-control when I see all of these things around me that are saying to me, come, come to me and I will give you comfort. I will give you comfort in your moment of sorrow. To be self-controlled and to push away from that and say, no, that's a lie. But above all, it produces pleas to God to hold me steady, to help me wait on Him. I told you there were two things. There are two things. I promise the last one is much, much shorter. It's just simply be patient. Be patient. David comes back to the confidence that he has in God in, in verse 13. And having inquired of God, he now expresses his trust that he will look on God. We saw in verse 4, he stated his desire to gaze upon the beauty of God. He spoke of his obedience to seek the face of God in verse 8. And now he comes back to that, both of those things, and says, I am sure that I will look on the goodness of the Lord. Where? In the land of the living. This draws us again to those desires of his in verse 4. He wants to, to dwell in the house of the Lord all his days. He points back to saying that he trusts that this will come about. And all of this is because he is confident that the Lord will continue to be true to his own character. As the Lord has been, so he will continue to be. The Lord is gracious. He said, seek my face. David has done so, and therefore he can wait on the Lord. That's the emphasis in 14. I can wait. You will establish me in the paths of righteousness. You will teach me your ways, so I will wait for you. We are all called to be confident in the Lord. And the basis of our confidence is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has been raised, vindicated as the righteous one of God. Those who receive him by faith look forward to a future vindication as well. And so we too can patiently wait for salvation, for the salvation that we have received and will experience in full at his return. So Church, 
Christian, be patient. When you are slandered or wronged, be patient. You don't have to try to get people back. And the question is, why would we? We're free from having to try to vindicate myself. I'm free from that. That burden doesn't fall to me. I don't have to worry about it. Because the Christian's vindication comes at the end of the age when we are found in Christ. So lashing back out in anger when we've been hurt, that's just faithlessness on our part. Paul tells us that in Romans 12, 19, where he writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If cancer comes or financial ruin seems inevitable, the people of God are free from despair. How do we know? Because the Lord tells us in His Word. Paul writes in Romans 8, when he asks the question, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. They won't. They can't. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ. Christian, if this is true, you have salvation from your enemies. If whatever it is, if it's cancer, something else, if it kills you, the only thing it can do to you is transfer you to the presence of the Lord. So be patient. Seek to understand and follow the ways of the Lord. Hold fast to Him. I'll say one more thing. Because this need for patience leads us to reflect on our need for one another. We've all been in the place where we felt like we were about to, to just drown in despair. If you haven't ever felt that way, then trust me, it's coming. I realize I'm young. I realize there are those younger than me. I know it's coming. It's coming for us all. It's easy to say outside of that moment, just hold fast to Christ. I realize if you're there this morning, it's, I would be, if I were in your shoes, I would be looking at me going, yeah, it's easy for you to say you're standing behind a pulpit. That's what you're supposed to say. I get it. But my encouragement to you is the same. Remember the hope that you have in him because of his resurrection from the dead. But in that moment, I get it, in that moment we will want to pull away and find instant relief from anything and everything that is offering it to us. So what we need is one another. We need the people of God to come around us and to urge us on to faithfulness. We need the people of God to confront us in sin when we are in despair, when we are saying, what's the use? To direct us back to the ways of God. If my inclination in the face of despair is to seek solace outside of Christ, if you recognize that in yourself, then I hope what you also recognize is the need that you are desperate to surround yourself with faithful brothers and sisters who will point you, who, for me, will point me back to the ways of the Lord. 
who are going to remind us that true freedom is only found in Christ and in His resurrection from the dead. So what this means is being intimately involved in one another's lives. Small groups provide an opportunity for that. This is a place where where hopefully you're able to confess struggles with sin, where you can be prayed for and pray for one another, where trust and love, I hope, are, are being developed. Sunday mornings also provide an opportunity for that. Here, we encourage one another in our singing. I cannot tell you how many times I have come into this room tired and just wanted to lay down somewhere and listen to you sing and watch some of you whose things I know are going on in your life and watch you sing nonetheless. To take the Lord's Supper and to stand there and testify to the fact that though trial and suffering come, you will continue to say, God is good. To give Him your thanks. To give Him your praise. We need one another if we're going to patiently hold on through despair. So if you find yourself routinely cutting yourself off from the household of faith by choosing not to gather with the body, you need to understand. You're depriving yourself and your family of relationships with the very people that you need to hold the rope for you when despair arrives at your doorstep, and it will. And what that is is like a fish flopping itself up on the shore and saying, this is okay, I'll make it. We need one another if we are going to be patient in the face of despair. And with kindness, gentleness, and, 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 and patience, that the way in which we encourage one another coupled with urging one another to put away sin, we bear witness to the community of what love and delight in God produces. An outpost of pilgrims who are faithfully awaiting our King and the hope of the resurrection that is to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time this morning. And thank you for your word. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the chance to gather with them on a week-in, week-out basis to sing praise to you, you alone who are worthy. I pray this morning, Lord, that you will take your word, you will take song, and you will work in us to increase in us love and delight in you. For you, O Lord, are worthy of our praise, you and you alone. Be kind to us and grant these requests that we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.